Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's Money-M-O-R-P-H-O-S-I-S.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Hello, it's Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. So over a decade ago, I got my degree in international economics, and I was so fascinated while in my studies about this concept of growth. I wondered, like, what natural system had endless growth? I just felt like it was a very odd uh, goal for our economy to have endless growth. And I thought, well, what, you know, the impact of that is more resource consumption and environmental degradation and just felt like it was a uh, challenging premise for our economy that needed to transform to really bring about a more just and equitable economy and world uh, where more people could be thriving. And it was about uh, two and a half years ago, I began to work with the Post-Growth Institute, and uh, we're an international nonprofit that really focuses on creating a more full circle economy uh, that operates within ecological limits. And so I am so excited to hear this conversation getting more and more attention, especially in Europe. Uh, this post-growth idea is really uh, beginning to take off and be discussed in both academia and in government and feel like it's a really important framing to say, what is next and uh, what is valuable and how do we define our wealth uh, beyond just economic growth. And so I uh, was thrilled to uh, find our guest today, who is uh, Dr. Ava Houtenbeckers. She is an activist researcher in Finland. She is a member of the Finnish degrowth movement, and her research focuses on the role of all kinds of work in and for the paradigm change for post-growth societies. Ava follows projects focusing on forest use, land rights, and self-sufficient households in Finland. Her research is funded by Nestling and Cohn Foundations, and she has an affiliation with the Aalto University Department of Design. And uh, you can find her website at www.aattienen.com. So, uh, so thrilled to have you on, Ava. You really are a leading uh, thinker and researcher in this field of uh, the post-growth world. And I would love to begin by hearing some more from you about what you find uh, most exciting about the work that you do. And what I find more exci- most exciting about my work at the moment is just being immersed in these discussions and practices related to post-growth and degrowth. This is um, a type of funding that I acquired specifically to be part of this movement, to do academic research, but also um, engage with hands-on projects while doing research and studying these projects while I'm part of them. So the, the, the whole, what I do every day is, is very exciting. Mm. Yes, I I am so glad to know that you are out there actually looking at these complex topics, which are really uh, across different sectors and and really impact people's uh, daily life. And um, I'm curious, you know, tell us a little bit about kind of this paradigm of continuous economic growth and, and what is challenging about it. Yes, so now we are living in a phase where 
continuous economic growth is a policy paradigm um, that is, it's a taken for granted paradigm. And luckily there are increasingly more and more people who challenge this. But if we look at the news and daily politics and how we are supposed to engage with the world now in the Western countries in the global North, we are supposed to be part of this growth machine. And what this growth machine results in is um, so social problems, ecological problems, and these intertwine. For instance, climate change, um, uh, the biodiversity loss, um, modern slavery, and then all sorts of environmental anxiety that people are experiencing. So I really do want to address these socio-ecological challenges and I feel that we need this paradigm change and luckily I'm not alone. <laughs> so, so yes, but it's a very challenging thing because we are ourselves part of this um, growth thinking. It's very difficult to, to challenge or battle something that we are so very much deeply in, in, interwoven with. So that's the hard part. Mm. Yes, yes, it is uh, like fish swimming in the polluted water. It's it can be hard to uh, to tell that that's uh, that's hazardous to our health, uh, quite literally, with the growth obsession of growth. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, you know uh, you kind of call yourself an eco feminist, and I'm curious uh, what that means to you and uh, why you identify as that. Yes, so um, when I, I mean, when I say that um, we are so deeply um, involved with this growth paradigm, it doesn't mean that um, we would want it, <laughs> but it means that we are um, uh, also uh, willingly, but mostly involuntarily um, part of it because our um, livelihoods come from mostly from waged work or from social security that it's tied to this continuous economic growth ideology and and our pensions are um, uh, dependent on that at least in in the nordic countries so this is a very that's why it's so difficult to avoid so ecofeminism for me means um a way of thinking uh, that reveals the exploitation of um, those who are in a less privileged position. Let it be the so-called nature, so the non-human beings and um, things around people, but also people who are not in a privileged position. So this is usually women, uh, children, um, people with uh, disabilities, elderly people, yes. So this um, ecofeminist philosophy for me is, um, is a moral stance <laughs> in a way to, uh, to end the exploitation of these um, taken for granted, um, and now I say resources because this is how people and uh, nature is used as a resource for this endless growth. And uh, according to many ecofeminist thinkers, um, this is intertwined. So the way we treat uh, nature, and I understand people as part of nature, but for the sake of sort of uh, symbolic thought here, I just use the word nature. The way we use nature and the way it, it reflects how uh, people in less privileged positions are, are taken care of or not taken care of and vice versa. So these go hand in hand. Mm. Yes, this, uh, this makes me think of um, several months ago, the uh, woman who's um, leader of New Zealand uh, began to talk about this well-being economy and proposed that any additional spending would go towards these areas of well-being. Um, 
that we're beyond things that may uh, things that may not have been measured financially and and had their value placed uh, uh, in monetary terms. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the importance of uh, valuing uh, things uh, like the health and well-being of women and children and and our natural world. Yes. So. Um when we think of this growth paradigm or uh, economic thinking and economic thinking, I now refer to this uh, um, taken for granted, what you hear in the news sort of discourse way of speaking. So then wealth is understood as more money or more um, assets, whereas everything that we do uh, as a humanity is based on on the well-being of everything around us but of course uh, people as well so in the long term if this this well-being is not taken care of then there will be no nothing <laughs> and quite literally there is of course the danger of loss of humanity but there is at the moment also more and more consensus of the fear of losing the whole planet in a way that is very hospitable not hot, like not welcoming to any forms of life so so um even though humanity would be wiped which would be i think very terrible but now some are saying that the climate would come so bad and the biodiversity loss is so deep that this is even beyond humanity now so definitely valuing others than money, it would be utmost important. And to me, it sort of seems sometimes listening to these daily political debates, it seems so absurd because it's just from coming from this eco-feminist or some people then from deep ecological thinking, these um, that just don't make any sense. <laughs> like, and these these requests for diversifying the measurements seem also quite little compared to what we would need to do. And this doesn't mean that we wouldn't need to diversify the measures. We would definitely need to do that and much more. Mm, yes, I agree. Yeah, it's it's almost like this um, existential crisis when we look at the the growing evidence of of climate change and its impact on our society and and economy and environment and uh you know how how can we become more adaptable and resilient and able to cooperate and uh you know uh wisely use the resources we do have together um could could you paint a little picture for us um, of what a post-growth economy could look like. What kind of um, tools and organizational structures and elements uh, could go into kind of uh, this time of transition to uh, a different way of, of being and valuing one another? Well, that's a very good question, <laughs> and you're uh, at the heart of what I'm trying to partly answer during my um, four-year project. <laughs> and um, um, how I have, because it's a massive question, of course, as you mentioned, it is an existential question in the end. Um, what do we value as a humanity, and how do we take care of ourselves and then others who live with us on this planet but then if we come a bit closer to the daily politics and our daily lives which i think is very important because that's the source of also uh, the answers for such crisis so it's not like um, thinking and metaphysical sol solving problems but it's actually daily work so what I have been thinking lately a lot after following some concrete and tangible projects for um, almost two years now is that it seems that the toughest question is how to work together. 
and by this I mean that um, um, the the way we are living now, at least how it seems to me in in the global north, so in the Western countries, is very individualistic, and it's based on this neoliberal ways of understanding how people work. But in truth, um, we are inclined to working together with others, and we actually do, even though there is this um, um, sort of supposed way of being. I think people, and I know, and also research shows that people do work, they collaborate all the time. But doing this um, among economy and doing it sort of knowingly and then somehow doing it in a manner, manner that would bypass this need of economic growth, I think there is the challenge. And it just means concrete things like if um, decision-making is not based on uh, the number of shares, what is it then based on? Like who gets to say and what? And if, if and when there is a wealth to be managed commonly instead of somebody, a private person or a company owning it, like a piece of land or forest, how do we then manage it together? So it's very, very concrete um, questions and things to decide. Mm. Yes, I'm, I too am fascinated in both the systemic transformation and then our personal transformation and find that people want to be generous and want to have meaningful contribution and feel a sense of belonging in their community and, and feel like they are a valuable uh, member of society. And yet so often our, our systems are extractive and breed competition and uh, things like, you know, money created as debt with uh, interest uh, kind of drives this, this kind of scarcity in the system. And, uh, and so it sounds like you are a proponent of things like worker cooperatives and uh, here we have community land trusts and, uh, and so how can we have policies that uh, create systems that... Uh, uh, encourage greater cooperation and and wise use of resources. Um, is that right? Yes, definitely. So I have been doing um, research previously on social enterprises. So um, these are, of course, versatile only in a country like Finland, who has only five 0.5 million people. So there are so many different types of social enterprises here <laughs> only, but I've been um, studying uh, these self-employed young urban entrepreneurs who, who feel that whatever uh, professional know-how they have, they cannot go and work uh, with the existing institutions, but they want to, to address these socio-ecological problems that they see. So it's very important. So for instance, one of them works with the uh, upcycling of uh, textiles. But for instance, with that uh, case, um, it has been very challenging to, to make a living out of it. So then, then this, um, it comes to also, how do we support these initiatives? And, and because we do support um, in, Again, this is the Nordic countries. There's quite a lot of uh, support for companies in different forms. So why not support also um, worker cooperatives, uh, community enterprises, somehow support the self-employed people who are often quite alone? I would know because I am one. <laughs> so, yes. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's... Uh... It's so fascinating to have the uh, leading example of, of the Nordic countries, uh, as Rian Eisler says, that demonstrate the partnership models instead of dominator uh, paradigm and, uh, and, and things like, you know, uh, free healthcare, education, uh, you know, paid time off after 
for maternal and paternal leave. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, having grown up there, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about your own money story and, uh, and how this kind of influenced you uh, in the work you're doing today. Yes, yeah, so um, Finland is a Nordic country, one among the five. And um, many things here are provided by the government, uh, like uh, free education from preschool to university. For instance, I have never paid for any of my degrees and I have defended a doctoral thesis. So that's quite mm, not very common <laughs> globally. And healthcare is also covered uh, mostly. And it's then the taxes um, that we pay that cover these services. So this is a useful background to know uh, also for my personal money journey because it means that families um, spend money differently and they save up differently compared to, for instance, the United States where families have to save for education, which I have understood is a very big burden. Yes, so um, I don't think I never I, I never thought about money explicitly, not before my parents decided that they would build a house. And, and we used to live in this uh, suburb with the rental apartment buildings. Um, and uh, yes, and I guess nobody talked about money too much. Um, well, it's also a bit of a taboo, but still like everybody was going to work. This was a worker suburb mostly. And yes. And then I was being interviewed at the kindergarten by this radio show where they have kids. Uh, they go to different kindergartens at the time. And, and they asked, what would I do with the money that the tooth fairy had brought me? And I said that I would save it up for the house. And then my parents were so embarrassed because <laughs> they thought that now I have to save up my money as well. But a lot of people thought it was quite cute. But then I ended up uh, getting a bit later concerned about um, the way economy and money seem to always be the end stop. So I have... Um, sort of, I can say that I'm coming from a privileged position in the way that I have, I'm a middle class person and we had a tougher period with my mother when my parents divorced, but there was never like a situation that we could have not organized things in the end. For instance, the house that they built, she ended up selling it then in the end. And so things worked out. So in that way, my passage has been, um, um well easy could be one word to say it yes and as i said the nordic country has all these services so it's um there's always some sort of a net um to catch you yeah and and it seems like uh there i spent a year in holland when i was in college and uh just saw how how less wealth inequality led to kind of just a greater security and have like everyone had enough. There wasn't this, uh, in America, there's so much shame of like, you know, uh, whether people are rich or poor, there's, uh, you know, just such a great, uh, difference in, in people's, uh, housing and, and ability to wear certain, uh, kinds of clothes and things. And, uh, and so, so I'm, I'm curious if you ever noticed uh, that kind of, well, well, when you first started to realize there was wealth inequality to some degree, how, how was that? Well, yes, there was a moment um, when I was a child, we, my father was really easygoing and he had a lot of friends and then um, we got to know these families through his profession as a driving instructor a lot of, like for instance, this family who had a, a earth construction business and they had a huge house. It was like from coming from this apartment building um, area 
and they had a swimming pool. And then I sort of was like, wow, people can have these big houses and everything. But then somehow it, it wasn't an issue. Of course, it was nice if somebody has a swimming pool. But then I was a bit curious, like, how is this possible? And then I asked my parents and they never sort of explained it. But then, then I, as kids do, I was listening to adults when they thought I wasn't. And I somehow gathered that this is a matter of being rich or wealthy. I, I cannot remember what was the word uh, that was used. Um, and there, there was some ambivalence with this concept or this way of talking about it. And then I asked the kids of the wealthier family that, are you rich? And they were really irritated and didn't want to talk about it at all. And my parents were really angry at me for asking it. And so, yes, then I realized that there's something with this money that it's not as straightforward, that it's not only about spending and saving, <laughs> but it's also attached to this. Um, of course, I didn't know the words then, but somehow attached to this value of people or value of things. And yes. Yeah, so much uh, connected to our identity and uh, and who we are, measured by how much we have in our bank accounts. And uh, so I think it's fascinating to really explore that, you know, for each individual person to look at their own personal money story and beliefs and how that influences their behaviors and then look at the culture we're embedded in and, and the values, you know, um, and, and America has always aggrandized, you know, bigger is better and, and just uh, our idols are often the rich and famous and, uh, and there's that American dream that, that people are striving for, even though it may not be such a reality uh, for more and more people that there is so much uh, poverty here that is hidden and, uh, and um, people really are suffering. I'm curious to hear some more of, um, you know, what what are some of the challenges that that you see to creating a more just and equitable economy? Yes, I was thinking when you mentioned this, uh, more is better. That um, the problem with the degrowth movement, um, which I think is somewhat uh, circumvented when using post-growth, <laughs> but uh, degrowth, um, and there's a reason why it's called still degrowth, and I will come to that. The problem is that it implies that things will not be bigger and better, which of course is what it is saying when it comes to resource use and exploitation of uh, the less privileged people. Uh, but what it also comes with, degrowth, and I think post-growth agendas as, as well, at least some of them, they come with this idea of that less can be more. And this uh, continuous growth and continuous uh, running after something bigger and better and more is actually making us sadder, um, unhealthier, um, uh, less connected to others and ourselves. So, so the sort of upside of wanting to challenge this uh, continuous economic growth is actually getting more meaning and more, well, other things than these uh, sort of one-sided, flat, um, bigger and better is more ideas. And more yeah. sort of, yes, this um, sort of living in the what do we actually need and want instead of this fame and money and gloss, glossy, whatever things. Mm, right. And, and this fear that's so pervasive that we want to blame others, whether it's the refugees or, uh, or people of uh, the opposite sex or, you know, it's so divisive and polarized that, uh, and really feeds on people's fear, which doesn't allow us to be creative and connected and empathize with other people. Um, and, and I'm curious on, on your thoughts about um, both fear and, and kind of the dominator paradigm 
I've been very inspired by the work of Gibson and Graham and their colleagues. So they have this book called uh, Take Back the Economy, which was not the first book that I read, but it's, it's a really nice book to, to read also for academic people, so not, but for anybody. So it's um, a workbook, how do we actually take back what is said not to be ours, but actually economy is what we do. So, but yes, and so this is what, economy is what we do and it's what we do all the time. For instance, um, there is an ex expectation that people go to work and I mean waged work, that they are dressed, uh, fed and happy and well slept. But all this um, preparation happens somewhere uh, and nobody sort of talks about it, but that's also um, work that we do. We are part of economy, just um, making sure that this waged work happens. And it might be the same person doing that, but it might be the rest of the family making sure that people are able to go to work, waged work. So, yes, yeah, so that's sort of the key thing. Yeah, I, I love that, just uh, putting that priority on our well-being again and, and our ability to, uh, you know, as they say, make a living um, and just that we deserve that, that basic needs to be met and, and really appreciate economy is what we do uh, and that kind of message of uh, it it affects us all and uh and i like to say an economy is a place where we come to care for one another and it's obviously come uh been distorted a bit in the modern focus of uh personal uh, profit and and that kind of extractive mentality but i want to bring it back the heart into the economy and say, hey, this is where we connect and exchange and where we can have transparency about the impact of our financial decisions and, and really care for each other uh, more effectively. Um, I'm curious to hear, you know, your thoughts about that as well as what opportunities you see in this uh, transition time. Yes, and you ask about fear also earlier um so i tried to somehow combine this because i think um talking about fears is very important and these uh difficulties that might come but also of course the opportunities so my fear with this the reason i started to talk about this taking back the economy is that um although i'm very for it and i see definitely the intellectual value in it but in practice i have a lot of trouble sort of um, taking back the economy, so to speak. And I have been, of course, uh, doing stuff because otherwise I wouldn't be self-employed instead of um, looking for a well-paid job uh, being hired by somebody. So my steps are there, but it is not, it is easy because it's something that we do all the time. But then again, changing the shares of things in our lives might be harder than sometimes we, we would like to think. And it, it, it comes to this fear of um, getting by. So how do we get a living out of this, this maybe different types of doing or other ways of being in this world? So it's a lot to ask from people uh, in a way to say that, um, just quit your jobs and do something different. So, and that's not what I'm suggesting or this book that I mentioned is suggesting, but actually it is to make visible that there are many ways to go about these things and not only the fear of losing your living, not only letting that dominate every decision, but also sort of taking that and looking at it. But then the opportunities in this, is that um, I think people are getting more and more tired of this manipulation and, and governing that they are said that unless you do what we say, you will not have a job and you will not have a living. And there are examples in the world. Um, for instance, now in Europe, 
from Spain and Greece where they have had a lot of financial troubles on the state level and a lot of of course then local troubles because things are not working so people have taken back the economy and they are not doing worse they are not maybe doing much better but they are getting by so they are getting their livelihood and that's very promising i think yeah, yeah I, I i agree it's like this uh cultural shift that can happen when we do uh get creative with how we meet our needs and and uh there's more and more people in the gig economy as as it's called here which uh has has its challenges as well as far as limited protection and uh and kind of retirement opportunities and things but more and more people are needing to be creative and self motivated, entrepreneurial. And uh, we've been doing this offers and needs market uh, process uh, around the world now with people through the Post Growth Institute. And uh, it's it's basically this uh, live 90 minutes where people come together face to face around small tables of eight people or so and go through this process of sharing their uh, passion, knowledge, skills, resources, uh, and and it's and then going and sharing their needs as well with uh, people, and uh, it's just amazing to make visible the value that's already in our communities, and to help participants get more uh, creative about what they have to offer that maybe they've never been paid for before, uh, but uh, maybe it's an interest and passion that other people have. Um, and so, uh, yeah, curious if you want to say anything about the power of people coming together face to face and and kind of revealing how much wealth is already there and and getting creative with how they connect with others in their communities mm, that sounds very exciting and i think you're doing uh, a lot of important work in that terms because people are not used to um sort of brainstorming or <laughs> coming sort of out of their comfort zone in terms of thinking these things but it sounds very pleasant that was not to, to say that it sounds unpleasant at all it sounds very pleasant and sort of um, like this upgoing uh, spiral where people get uh, good vibes from others and and they get this sense of um, um, achievement like uh, as you mentioned that I do know something and I can contribute to the community and this is I guess what the problem with the kick economy is that it might um, isolate people from others instead of bring them together so this type of work bringing people together is very important and yes how, how to then make that happen I think it's the the key and I what you mentioned this 90 minute coming together uh it reminds me of time banking so the idea that people put online these um notes what they can do for others and also their needs and then uh via the system that's online people can look for what people other have others have to offer and then they can suggest their own offers and then through the system there's this um, whatever time currency the local system uses, then um, the buyer um, pays that for the seller and then everybody has this own balance. Usually they are not attached to any currency, but for instance, in Switzerland, there is a, a time banking system that it's um, also connected to the monetary state currency. Yeah, I've I've been excited to see how people are getting creative with complementary currencies and time banks and uh, and what's cool about this process is people can say for each offer whether it is a gift uh, and uh, they're open to bartering or whether it's a certain financial amount they'd like to uh, to include and ultimately you know it's just bringing people back together to. Uh, this more intimate uh, connection and ability to uh, ask for what they need and and share what they want. Um, yes, huh. what I 
what I'm finding interesting about the time banking, which is not uh, unfortunately too big in Finland yet, there is a couple, but what I, I find it good for sometimes the quiet and withdrawing Finnish Nordic people is that you don't have to <laughs> first come up with like meeting people that you don't know, but you can sort of, um, how do you say, like, uh, be in control how much you show yourself. Yes. So, so then coming together uh, to same places to discuss things, it seems based on my ethnographic work with these topics, forest, land use and um, self-sufficiency, it seems that it takes time uh, for people to to trust um, and and also that uh, they are sort of willing to really say what they need <laughs> or what they can offer. So, yeah. Yes, uh, we just uh, a couple of months ago had one, uh, someone ran in Zimbabwe with a group of 150 youth ages 18 to 25. And this really surprising uh, thing came out of it. It it really dissolved uh, some of the gender barriers, you know, that some of these young men were assuming that the women had nothing to say or offer of value around these certain topics or could only bring these, you know, certain things that women traditionally did. And so I think it also breaks down uh, those assumptions about other people of, of certain uh, demographics that uh, may prevent uh, connection in the ordinary life. Um, and, and that really ties into what, you know, how do you see having more open, transparent conversations about money as being a really valuable part of a post-growth society? Yes. I think it's coming from this very academic uh, perspective of what I've been going through the literature for a couple of years now. There's always been money, and um, yes. So to cut it short, there's always been some form of a currency, and by always I mean like well, quite a long time. And and when we talk about these um, societies that have a lot of people uh, with them, and then with money comes debt, and how do the societies deal with debt? That's also very interesting. Um, Uh, there have been times and societies where debt uh, was not to be paid back in the end, but the ruler of the society would cancel the debts uh, every what not year. So that's interesting. But what comes to the times we're living now and the role of money and, and post-growth, uh, the reason I mentioned time banking and I explained, explained it to Here, although I think many of the listeners are very familiar with the system and the different versions of it, I think uh, detaching from these centralized systems could be one way to take back the economy, <laughs> to use the book title. So somehow it doesn't mean that detach completely from everything, but To, to have a bit more space to do things that the community themselves values, whatever it may be, and to be a bit more resilient and a bit more mm, uh, sort of autonomous in that way. Yes, I, and I see this movement towards people want to align their values with their money. Of course, we've had socially responsible investing for a while, and now there's this impact investing, which is taking it to the next level of not just screening out the bad, but actually looking at the, the quality of the good that, that your investment is doing. And so I think it is really important to have greater transparency for people to be able to make decisions and know that they are in alignment with their values yes it is and then then I think it's um, because economy is what we do every day it's also about um, 
uh, rethinking many parts of it, not only uh, like um, consuming for goods. Um, and food is, of course, a big area of rethinking that has a lot of moment in it, but also in terms of, uh, well, Finland is not a big service society, I would say, having visited uh, North America. It's it's very much less, <laughs> but but in Finland, for instance, rethinking how to uh, how to organize services in a different way, uh, more with this peer to peer organizing instead of uh, waiting for the government to solve things, or then in some other contexts maybe not waiting money to buy for them, but instead um, doing things more with the community and by doing things more with the community i once again want to state that it's not something that is straightforward based on my own experience um it's it means work so sometimes it is easier to use money or or rely on whatever and i don't think it's like a bad thing to do that but um more maybe to rethink and challenge one's own assumptions especially if if people say that oh i need to go um and work this and this much and get this and this much money for my work because i my expenditure is this and this well how about thinking the expenditure side and then thinking uh, and if being unhappy with the amount of waged work this comes with the equation so then why not trying to use the time not for the waged work, but actually for the things that uh, the person uh, finds important, whatever it may be, being more with kids, being more with neighbors, being more with, with um, their parents or whoever. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you've said there's this revolutionary idea in diverse and community economies that the economy doesn't stop if there's no waged work. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So um, uh, with this thinking of Gibson and Graham and the colleagues, they, they conceptualize economy to... Um, to five areas and I hope I remember now them all but I can check uh, so it's enterprise uh, work finance transactions and property yes I think I remember them all so um, so with all these spheres there is the the taken for granted at the moment, the capitalist way of doing things, then there is the alternative to capitalism, and then there is non-capitalist way. And when we think of work, um, this is like a tool, not like the, the truth of how things are, but a tool to analyze our own being in this world. When we think of work, waged work is um, in, in the capitalist ways of organizing mostly, but then we do a lot of work at home or with the communities that we are part of already. Um, if it's the, the school, uh, parents working for the school, or if the neighborhood has um, people coming together, or if there's um, like a nonprofit that people work for, or, or just merely taking care of the household is, is work in these terms. So it doesn't definitely doesn't stop if there is no wage work. Ah, so important to bust through that kind of myth, and uh, of course we we see it when uh, countries uh, have sudden economic collapse. Uh, not not that it's pretty and it can be chaotic and and stressful, but people do get innovative and and creative and continue to live life and have to. Uh, yeah, make make do and be resilient. Um, so you mentioned nonprofit uh, and a lot of our work at Post Growth Institute uh, and led by Donnie McClurkin has been around uh, shifting 
our um, endeavors to more not-for-profit enterprises, which could include also foundation-owned uh, companies and uh, things that people might not realize, like the company Bosch and Velcro are both uh, in this category. And, and uh, his, his real point there is that uh, the money is extracted into private shareholder hands in traditional corporate mandate is that they need to maximize profits. And so that when we shift to more not-for-profit not enterprise, we are able to circulate that money back into the communities. And uh, I'm curious, you know, in your research, if you've kind of uh, focused on the importance of that sector at all. Yes, I have. I have been doing work um, um, here. We would call them social enterprises. This uh, system of uh, um, sort of putting back in the, <laughs> the, the whatever gains there is after the expenditure. So not not um, not sort of dividing it to the shareholders, but but putting it back into the the actual action that is important for the social enterprise, and yes, I I I'm completely <laughs> for supporting social enterprises and and um, and learning from them more. In Finland, actually, one of one of the very big uh, healthcare and social sector organizations is organized like as a foundation and it's over 100 years old it's called this diagonisalaitoksen uh, saatia uh, so it's um, a foundation for diagonist work and it's very impressive how they organize it all um, but for that foundation as for many others uh, and this is not a criticism towards their activities, but towards the system that they have to function in. The problem is then that, uh, for instance, with this healthcare work, uh, they have to compete with companies that are not functioning the way they are, <laughs> and so they are. We so they are sort of pulled to this. Um, competition where they have to be more efficient and whatever the capitalist ways of understanding are toward enterprise and that's a challenge because they do have these other values and valuations that are very important but if they are not to sort of asked for when they are competing for the for the bids for the government then their work is not valued uh, in a way that would give them advantage. So this is the the problem, the more systemic problem. Yes, but they are here, so that's a good thing. More than one hundred years. <laughs> yes, that's that's amazing. We're also seeing kind of a revolution in uh, the banking sector too. Uh, you know, there's a big movement here in the U.S. for public banking. Uh, several state banks as well uh, that uh, want explicitly say we're going to reinvest in the community and and support uh, the good of environment and people and uh, and credit unions of course uh, really leading the way for a long time in that that field that's very exciting I think there is um, a lot of work in that sector given the financial crisis that we have witnessed during the past years and how do we actually gain trust? This is uh, something that uh, one sociologist talks about, um, Castells, if I recall right, that he says that he predicts that um, people will get so tired with this financial and monetary institutions that they will just not trust them anymore. And he's basing his ideas uh, to Spain and Latin America. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of uh, ring to that. Uh, now it seems sort of 
quite stable at least when it comes to Finland but but yes, and this also comes back to what we discussed earlier about the time banks and the, the role of communities. It's very difficult to start these things when the crisis is um, on. And of course, I said earlier that in Spain and Greece, this had happened because out of necessity. But somehow I feel that doing this work before would be needed also for people to channel their frustrations in a in a more constructive way. Uh, the, the topic of fear that we discussed earlier and also the topic of, of people blaming the immigrants and, and other minorities. I think that's not a constructive way to, to channel your fears, but actually building the communities would be a better way to, to address this. Yes. Um, instead of um, sort of breaking the trust Although I have to say that I, I, I sort of, I definitely don't sympathize with racism or, or any kind of um, exclusion of people, but I do sympathize with people who have fears. <laughs> so, so I, I'm, I'm wondering, and I do know that there are people who do work with all kinds of um, communities, but this is also something that would, we would need at least in Finland because there is this uh, rise of people blaming the immig immigration of, of, of about everything. So how to bring people together to to discuss this logic and to show that it doesn't help anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm curious to hear, you know, what. Could you tell us some more about kind of the most exciting innovations that you see happening that will create a more healthy economy? Yes, so I've been following uh, one land trust in Finland. It's in the very beginning, but the idea is to um, establish a foundation to receive um, inheritance from people who have uh, no family so they could um, give their land to this foundation and then the foundation would um, and this is not only land but a land with uh, farm building so, and, and in Finland it's a big uh, well one could say problem but the trend in a more neutral way that the countryside is getting more uh, with less people and people are moving to the cities, so it's more deserted in the countryside. So this would uh, ensure that the the land trust could uh, redistribute these farms to people who would like to live off the land, so to speak, but don't have a place to go because they don't have the money to get a place. So this is one process, and I know this is happening all around the world. So this is not like a new idea, but I think it's very exciting, sort of this redistributing. So working within the system with this private land ownership, but not working it, not using it uh, to gain benefits for one family or one person, but to actually redistributing this wealth. And then I'm following also um, uh, households that are striving towards self-sufficient ways of living. And it's um, the aim is not to actually always be 100% detached from everything, but it's more like this existential process of of studying how how can a household that is connected to various communities and other households and and institutions as well, like schooling, how can they be more uh, self um, sort of dependent or have more control over things like what kind of work they do and what kind of uh, food they eat and what kind of electricity they use and and warming that's a very big question in Finland because we are a cold country in the winter yes and maybe a third thing that I want to say is um, I am always excited when I see women taking initiative and this is because I think 
um, women's work is still being taken for granted in in our times, um, and that when women, so whatever the initiatives m- might be, there are a couple that I'm following. So then I feel that they are, and we are, because I'm also part of some of them, we are um, sort of not uh, willing to be exploited. We are not willing to let our work be exploited, but we want to make the world more equal in this sense. Yes. Oh, thank you for sh- for sharing that. Um, I'm curious, uh, who who else is influencing your thought and who you're reading right now that may be of interest to us? Yes, there's a lot of books <laughs> in my office, um, and I would love to read more. Uh, at the moment, I'm still in the middle of uh, Silvia Federici's The Caliban and the Witch. It has a subtitle, Women, the Body and the Primitive Accumulation. That's about women's work and the way it has been um, done and also exploited throughout um, some centuries in Europe. That's a very interesting book. She works and lives in New York at the moment. She's from Italy originally. Then I'm reading a lot from the Community Economies Research Network uh, that is originated by Gibson and Graham, who I mentioned earlier. And now I'm reading a book uh, by Ethan Miller called Reimagining Livelihoods, Life Beyond Economy, Society and Environment. And that's very exciting because he is um, um, focusing on livelihoods as I'm as well, and we have been discussing today and not only from the perspective of social and economic or economic and environment but trying to bring them all together which is quite demanding and then there's a lot of other books but maybe these two are now the to to relate to what we have been discussing today (laughs) great thank you uh so much um, and just uh, curious where people can uh, find out more about your work and, and read some of your research. Yes, so there's the, um, the website you mentioned, um, under development all the time. Um, the more daily work I update in Instagram with my username, Aatteinen, so it's the same, double A-double-T-E-I-N-E-N. And then I list all of my work to Google Scholar and saying now these two very big uh, tech companies, <laughs> it's also something that I'm working on personally to detach a bit from the big big tech companies, but here still using them. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, I'm so inspired uh, talking to you today and just love imagining together what is possible. It, it feels like this world is, and, and it is already emerging uh, through us and, uh, and through the good work of people right now uh, doing these in their own communities and, and globally looking at systemic and uh, local and initiatives to create a post-growth uh, society. And uh, would just be curious to hear uh, any closing thoughts that you have. Oh, I'm so grateful for having had a chance to talk with you about these things and I feel that of course there's a um, lot more to say uh, but I uh, um, and to discuss and to develop but I wanted to just encourage anybody who is feeling perhaps anxious because the, the reason I, I talk about fear and these not so pleasant things is that I think there are a great source of also power to do something. So if anybody is feeling anxious about things, as I am, I can say that. <laughs> but I'm also very feeling very positive because I have found um, good sources to work with this uh, stuff. For instance, uh, Joanna Mace's work, Active Hope, 
that I forgot to mention earlier. So yes, getting to know myself. So I encourage also other people to get to know yourself. So then it's easier to be with others. Yes, that's such a great point, uh, knowing ourselves more so that we can uh, really c not only contribute in a better way to our families and communities, uh, but also just have that deep sense of, of love and appreciation for the unique uh, value that we each bring. And uh, thank you so much for holding this uh, vision and really being a, a pioneer kind of at the forefront of, uh, you know, bringing a voice uh, to the post-growth, degrowth uh, movements and being able to put the research uh, time in to say, this is not just a utopian dream. This is actually a very realistic and natural way for humans to live and connect and, uh, and move uh, out from under uh, extractive systems of uh, ownership and economy that that are uh, having negative effects on people and planet so really appreciate your dedication to this field and uh, all the feminine wisdom that you bring uh, to creating a more just and equitable economy so thank you so much for being on the show today For listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve. 